tonight's reading is from the book of James, chapter 4, 13 um, through 5, 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. What's going on, Grace DC? Uh, my name's Ryan. I serve as one of the pastoral interns here at Grace Downtown. It's a privilege to be back up here in front of, uh, front of you all um, to reflect on these words from James together. If you'll please open in prayer with me. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of this word, um, for these, these hard words, but these words that are, that are good for us and that you intend to use for our benefit. We ask for the work of your spirit to um, make these words come alive in us and to renew us in the hope of the gospel. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're getting close to the end of our series on the book of James that we've been calling uh, Faith Lives Here. And uh, we've been exploring James, his inspired words on uh, what true faith looks like, how we, how we live this out, how it affects our words, how it uh, affects our actions a few weeks ago, we talked through um, what James has to say about favoritism and the sin of showing partiality, of favoring the rich over the poor. Uh, and now he turns the tables on that, and he addresses the rich and the powerful in this community. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth. It has a lot to say about money and about how it affects us. The book of Proverbs often speaks about the dangers of wealth with Words like this, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Or the rich are wise in their own eyes. The one who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are. For those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Some harsh words about wealth, but then it also speaks about the positive side of wealth. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible when it comes to wealth. There's nothing inherently evil or inherently wrong with money, but it is dangerous. It can be very dangerous. Your wealth is sometimes a reward from God, though certainly not always. You know, there's no formula that the Bible gives us of, you just do X, Y, Z, God will reward you with wealth. Suffering is going to be a part of every Christian's life, and 
The book of James really has no room for the prosperity gospel in it. (laughs) Wealth can be a tremendous blessing if it's accompanied by a generous spirit, by a heart for justice. But it can also turn, it can be easy to turn wealth into an idol. It can be easy to be tempted by money. It can be easy to make wealth something ultimate. It can be easy to be blinded by wealth, the suffering of people and what's going on around us. And that's what's happening in our our text here tonight. We're not exactly sure who the audience is for the book of James, but we do know that it's primarily Jewish Christians in and around Jerusalem. Now, during this time, most of the people in the, the Roman Empire, which controlled Jerusalem, would have been considered poor by our standards. There was um, this sort of upper end of society, this top maybe 1% or 2% of society that controlled a lot of the wealth, and then there was a small wealthy class beneath that, very small middle class. Most of the, um, most of the land and um, property was owned by this wealthy elite at the top of society, and so um, you'll often see like the setting for the second half of our passage tonight. It's a common setting for Jesus' parables. It's a common analogy. It's a common um, place for stories at this time. But then most of society kind of falls within this like 70% of people who had to work very long hours. They had to work often very difficult jobs. And that basically um, put them at, um, gave them enough possessions that they could feed themselves that day and feed their families. They were really living day to day and dependent on getting wages every day. And Jewish law actually accounted for this. It required um, that people paid their wages at the end of the day to their workers. Because the wealthy had so much control and so much power at this time, there were a lot of opportunities to take advantage of people, especially the poorer classes of people. Withholding wages, like we read in verse 4, that's a big deal. That's somebody's food the next day. Then on top of that, there were very high taxes in this region. So the, the Jews in this region, there was a religious tithe that was required of them, so it was basically a tax that went to upkeep of the temple and feeding the poor and things like that. But then there was also the taxes that they had to pay to Rome. Um, and so there were a lot of opportunities for people, if they fell on hard times, to fall behind on these taxes. And then there were loan sharks and there were um, other people taking advantage of them. This was a very good a very prominent business strategy at the time. And we also read about um, earlier in the book of James that something that was common that was going on was that the rich would use the court system to oppress the poor even further. If a poor person owed them money, they would go above and beyond and pursue them even more than what they owed in the court system. There were a lot of opportunities to take advantage of people, and wealth and power can easily corrupt. You know, this is... Nothing new. It's been going on ever since humankind's fall into sin. James understands this. And he gives us two different pictures here in this text of what that corruption can look like. The first is a group of merchants. It's a group of uh, businessmen who are talking about their next business venture. And they say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. We'll spend a year there. We'll trade and make a profit. Basically saying, you know, I'm not really sure exactly where we're going. We're going to make some money when we get there. Like, we're going to become wealthy. Now, James doesn't explicitly say that they're wealthy, but they clearly have resources. Right? Somebody who's living day to day doesn't talk like this. There are a couple of issues with these businessmen. The first is the way that they make their plans. Now, the problem is not that they make plans. 
you know, making plans is a good thing. The Bible has a lot of wise words to say about the value of making plans and planning for the future. The problem is the way that they make their plans. They're basically being practical atheists here. They assume that there will be no adversity or uncertainty, that they will be in control of things. This attitude reveals their boastful hearts. They think too highly about themselves and their own ability to control what's coming to them. If you're one of those people who's mapped out every step of your life and you know exactly what it's going to look like, be wise to make room for the fact that God's plans might be a little different than your plans. And this is a comforting thought. You understand the God of the Bible. We're confident in the future, not because of our own abilities, because we worship a, a good God who is sovereign. Now, the second issue with these people, which is also a manifestation of their arrogance and of their boastfulness, is the way that they treat their place around them and their people around them. They're not really sure where they're going to go to yet, but that wherever they pick, that place exists to serve them, to serve their needs. You know, they have a goal, and the place is just a, a means to that end, right? I think that can be a familiar attitude for some people in this city, too. You know, I'm going to D.C. because it will be a great step for my career. Or maybe I'm going to D.C. to make some money like these people. But I think if you have the attitude that um, this is just a fun place to live and move up the career ladder, it might blind you to some of the, the real problems that face this place, that the church needs to be speaking into, problems of... You know, what does it look like for people who've lived here their whole lives to adjust to all of this rapid change in the city or the struggle for affordable housing or racial injustice or another, a number of, of things that are impacting this city? Think about these words from the, the prophet Jeremiah to the Israelites who were exiled in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's a different way of thinking than these businessmen that James is describing here. Now, he goes a step further uh, with the next example of what corruption can look like uh, in what we read in chapter 5. He turns his attention to those who are actively oppressing the poor and the people who are working for them in their lives. Now, some of the things we've been reading in the book of James have been kind of hard to read, right? James can be pretty convicting with what it says about Lord expects of our, of our conduct as Christians, you know, how damaging to the church it can be to, to show partiality or to misuse your words. But this section has a little bit of a different feel, at least for me when I was reading it, reading about rich, um, powerful, and oppressive people getting judged. I think we like stories like that. Like, that sounds good. We want this to be true. I was thinking about the end of the movie, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, I'm going to spoil for anybody who's not seen it, but it came out like 25 years ago. So, uh, But the movie centers around, for those of you who've seen it, the movie centers around this prison in Maine, and the, the main antagonist of the story is this, this warden who oversees the prison. And he's a very uh, self-righteous man. He's a very, he loves to talk about how he believes that this prison is doing the Lord's work. Right? And he puts on a good face in public, but then he runs the prison in a way that really abuses and dehumanizes people. Plus the fact that he's laundering money on the side with the help of one of the prisoners. But then uh, at the end of the movie, the main character, Andy Dufresne, finds out a way to expose the warden to the local press and to um, reveal all of the terrible things he's 
been doing and all the terrible things going on uh, in this prison. And the warden finds out that um, he's, been, he's been outed, basically, and he's in his office, and he hears the sirens coming for him slowly at first, and they get louder. And he's in shock that it's all going to come crumbling down, and he looks up uh, at this embroidered picture on the wall, which is kind of his motto in the movie that says, his judgment cometh, and that right soon. And as we're looking at this scene, this man who misused justice for years, and he's about to be judged, and it's so satisfying, right? And you watch him find out that justice is coming for him, this man who really deserves it. You know, we love this story, and we want that story to be true. But James is writing to people for whom this is not true yet. He has strong words of warning for the oppressors and the wealthy people in this community. Now, scholars, there's a debate among scholars about whether these these rich people were actually part of the church community itself or whether there were people outside of the church community who were oppressing these Jewish Christians. But either way, um, what James uh, points us to here is a really harsh message. It's a message of condemnation for these people. Now, the context here is, is final judgment. He makes this explicit in the verse that comes just after this section in verse 7. But this is talking about the last days when Christ will return, and the Bible tells us he will come as a judge. You know, the human justice system has failed too many times to be good enough for God. But Christ's judgment will be perfectly just. And here James paints a vivid picture of what this will look like for unrepentant and oppressive people. It's people who are dishonest that he's describing, unjustly holding back the wages of those who are working for them. And then to top it off, they just sit back and relax and they live in their life of luxury and self-indulgence that he describes. And then even on top of that, James says that their oppression has gone so far as to be responsible for the murder of people, actually, the murder of righteous people who could not defend themselves now, this is one of the ways that um, wealth can really distort our judgment. When it becomes our focus, we become blind to the ways, to all the suffering that's around us. Tim Keller says it this way, money has the power to make you think that ruthlessness is just normal. And they do it all for the sake of hoarding money and possessions. This language about moths and rust destroying, um, if you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus, it'll sound familiar. Uh, In Matthew 6, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Scripture points out the obvious, that wealth is finite. can't take it with you. James uses some really graphic language here to remind us that money and possessions are not fit for our ultimate hope. This is a picture of, of total destruction, actually, for people who, who find their identity and their wealth. You know, and the best medicine for what James describes here in both of these scenes is a good dose of humility. He reminds people that um, these businessmen, he reminds them how, how lowly they are by widening the scope of how they look at their lives. You know, you may think you're such and such amount of importance, but when you look at your life from God's perspective, you know, you're just a miss. Don't presume to know his plans for you. And for the oppressive person, the people who are being abused underneath them, they have the ear of God. Their prayers are heard and they're powerful. 
because of the one who's on the receiving end of those prayers. They're praying to the Lord of hosts, and that's, I mean, that's a military term. That's military language. We sing that song in, uh, in church sometimes about the God of angel armies being by my side. And that's a, that's a humbling image to be standing underneath an army of angels whose general is the Lord, and he's passionate about justice. There's nothing like the power of God to remind us just how small we are, remind us that uh, our wealth is far less important to God than the people who suffer. For anybody reading this text who might have a lot of, of wealth or power, um, maybe from the money that you have, maybe from your job, it could be social power. Maybe you have a certain standing in a, a friend group or in your family. You know, this, this verse or this passage serves as a warning and doesn't use very soft language. And God's message is, is humble yourselves and repent. You'll never be beyond the power of God's grace in this life. But don't wait until the judgment day to try and justify yourself before God. And if you've made money through dishonest means, you might be able to lie about your wealth in this life. You might be able to find the legal loopholes that make it okay by human standards. Uh, but when you stand before the throne of God, you're, you might have been able to lie about wealth in this life. But your wealth will not lie about you when you're standing there on judgment day. It will serve as evidence against you, James says. You know, for the oppressed, there's a lot that we could say about suffering and about the role of of prayer in that suffering. Um, I would ask you to stay tuned because that's coming up in our next section in a couple weeks. But for now, there are some very brief but very simple and powerful words of comfort here. That's that God hears you. He hears your cries for justice. And he's heard the cries of justice from every single person who's ever lived, who's ever called on his name throughout human history, and he will not forget. You know, we're blessed here with a little bit of a glimpse of the divine perspective. When we look at the oppressors in our life, we might just see their wealth and their status and their wickedness. But when God looks at them, he sees their wealth and their power, but then he also sees their destruction. He sees it all at the same time, and he wants us to know that that judgment is sure. The fact that God as a holy judge might make some of us a little uncomfortable, but to the oppressed and the suffering, God's, God's judgment is grace. It's hope for them. Divine judgment is good news for the oppressed, and it's good news for everybody sitting in this room as well. The story of evil and powerful and oppressive people getting what they deserve, I think we all love this story because we want it to be true. I think there's also a part of us that thinks that it has to be true. I think there's something inside of us that says justice has to be served. Human justice fails too often to have the final say in the matter. There have been too many people who've been enslaved, been murdered, who've been oppressed without finding justice in this life. And that's not good enough for God. That's not good enough for the God of the Bible. You know, one of the reasons Christ came into the world is to actually show the flaws of the human justice system. He comes into the world and he lives this perfect life. He um, heals people of diseases that they thought were incurable. He preaches the best news that anybody could ever hear. He brings in society's outcasts into the presence of God. 
He shows the wisdom of God to these people. He submits himself to the people that he came to serve. And human justice responds with a death sentence. And it's death by torture. This is the response that Jesus gets from the human justice system. But God uses this mockery of justice, and he makes it the greatest event in the history of the world. You know, the fact of the matter is that we all deserve the same fate that James is talking about for these oppressive and wealthy people here. You know, unless you can stand before God and say, or stand before a perfect God and say, God, I'm perfect too, which I don't suggest you try. Justice demands punishment. But through the injustice of Christ's death, he conquered death through his resurrection so that sinful people who put their faith in him can be declared justified. The injustice of Christ's death leads to the justification of his people. Through submitting to death, he conquered death. Now he offers eternal life to the world. In this world, people obtain power through oppression. But Christ obtains power by giving himself up on behalf of others. That's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. You know, God hates our sin and pride, but justice has been satisfied so that the day of judgment will instead be a wonderful day for people who have put their, put their faith in him. The judgment we deserve has been handed down already. Life is given to people who deserve death. The burdens of life can be traded in for eternal peace and eternal rest. You know, that's good news even for oppressive rich people who repent and put their faith in him. As I think about um, trying to, to do something about the injustice and the suffering in this world, that's a pretty intimidating prospect to me. You know, on the one hand, we have so much access to, to news and information and journalism that exposes all of this terrible evil and suffering in the world. It feels like we're inundated with that. But then at the same time, like, I don't even know where my clothes were made. You know, I don't know who put together my phone. I don't know how many systems of oppression I'm uh, being a part of without even realizing it, even though we're exposed to all this evil. You know, oftentimes it feels like, for those of us who live in a, in a wealthy city in America, especially those of us who are in a majority culture, like we have to really seek out ways to make an impact, to make a change if we want to. But then at the same time, there's systemic injustice that we're a part of without even thinking about it. Like I saw another article in the Post this week that a lot of the chocolate that we, come, that we eat comes from cocoa beans that have been harvested by child laborers. You know, I probably bought that chocolate. I'm against child labor. Like, what's my role in this? A few of us in church have started reading Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, paints a pretty bleak picture of the role of the predominantly white church in the history of slavery and segregation in this country. It's a hard book to read, and I'm thankful to be a part of a church that um, recognizes the need for repentance and reconciliation on these issues, but what's my role in the, as a 21st century Christian in the majority culture in addressing this? It's a lot of hard questions. You know, I think it can be easy to read passages like what we read tonight, and think that the message is simple. You know, don't oppress people, right? Don't abuse uh, people who are underneath you. But that doesn't really get to the heart of things. It just kind of leaves you in a neutral place. 
Like Christian, Christian morality, gospel living is never just about avoiding things. There's always a positive aspect. Even if there's a command in the Bible uh, that's written in the negative, you know, something like, do not murder. That means more than just avoid killing people. You know, it means recognize the value and the dignity of every single human being. It means fight to preserve your life, fight to preserve the lives of those around you, defend people from violence, or do not steal. It means more than just avoid stealing and taking from other people. It means be generous with what you have. It means recognize that people's value is about far more than what they possess. And sometimes I've heard uh, the golden rule interpreted in our culture um, as do no harm, but that's not really what Jesus says. He says to love your neighbor. You know, he could have avoided the sin and evil of this world and just stayed up in, in bliss in heaven with his father, but he came into it, and he came into the brokenness of it. And I think the gospel gives us a firm foundation for entering into conversations about how to approach injustice in the 21st century, and how we move towards actions as, as individuals and as a church. You know, when you understand that that we're not the judge, Christ is the judge. It gives you the freedom to to be firm in our convictions, to confront people when they need to be confronted, to confront oppressors, especially in light of this text. But then it also gives you grace for each other and grace as you approach people with these conversations. You know, it's easy in our culture to to fall into self-righteousness and the pursuit of justice, to judge people for their involvement in something or their lack of involvement in something, there's no room for that in the gospel. You know, I'm, I'm nobody's judge. We're fellow servants in this. Gospel leads to humility and to repentance. We pursue justice as people who have already been justified by the work of another, as a people who have been elevated far above the place that we deserve. I'll close with this. There's this, uh, there's this great little passage in Galatians 2 where the Apostle Paul um, talks about a meeting that he had with Peter and with John um, and with James. This is our James. He's talking about these three men are really titans of the early church, very influential men. You'll see their names all over the New Testament. And these men want to make sure that um, Paul is a, a faithful minister. They, want to, they haven't met him before, and they want to make sure you know, that they agree with the things he's saying. And so... Paul preaches to them, and they hear his message, and they say, yes, you know, we bless you, brother. Go out and serve. But then they only have one response to the message that Paul preaches to them. They say, Paul, make sure you remember the poor. You know, they hear this message of Paul, the great theologian of, of grace, of justification by faith, of freedom from the law. And the application for, for James and his friends is clear. Serve those in need. God hates suffering. He hates oppression. He wants to see it end, and someday he will. But until then, may the church realize and live out the implications of the gospel. You all please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for these strong words. We ask for um, hearts and lives that are that are submitted to your gospel, that live out the truths of of what you've done for us that are passionate about injustice and um, serving the needy in our communities. 
send us out from here um, convicted of your gospel and of your grace for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.